Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to another episode of Heretics. And no, it can't all be about trans and um, Muslim grooming gangs, can it? Because you just can't have a life where you're worrying about that every day, maybe every other day and things like that. So today's hot topic, as Heretics would always have one, is with Paul Morland, Dr. Paul Morland, no less, a demographer. What's a demographer? I hear a percentage of you well, a demographic percentage of you ask. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so this is about population collapse. And we are apparently in trouble, depending on who you listen to. Some people say there are too many people, not enough resources. Some people say there's actually loads of space. Have you seen the views of of around Luton or Stansted airports from the sky? There's space, apparently. I don't know. It's a funny one because I am always tempted to be like, and I think it's a very human thing to be like, there's no space, all right? Just go away, everyone. Um, but but a lot of people are saying, no, no, there is space. And actually, we're in serious trouble right now around the world. And we're, uh, I just, just in case you weren't worried enough from all the grooming gangs and the trans stuff and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, there's, there's, just, there's just not enough of an aging... Uh, no, there's too much of an aging population. You'll hear him say it. He's slightly better at talking about it than I am. Uh, Paul Facts, as Adam Buxton says in his podcast, doesn't he? he just says someone the name and facts, and he's walking his dog somewhere. Um, many of you won't know who Adam Buxton is, nor must you, nor nor, nor need you. Uh, Dr. Paul Morland is an author and broadcaster who writes and speaks about population and the big demographic trends across the world, both contemporary and historic. Described as the UK's leading demographer and one of the world's preeminent demographers, Paul has written three books, Tomorrow's People, The Human Tide, and Demographic Engineering, and his work has been translated into nine languages. He has written for and been interviewed in many of the world's leading newspapers and magazines, from the Financial Times and the Sunday Times, to the Telegraph and the Jerusalem Post. And don't forget Der Spiegel. He has broadcast on many outlets, including BBC Radio 4, and has been an associate research fellow at Birkbeck University of London, and a senior member at St Anthony's College, Oxford. Uh, he lives in London, is married, has three children, and is a dual British and German citizen. It's nice giving a bit of an intro sometimes, isn't it? It feels like I've done a bit of research. I'm just kidding. I always do a hell of a lot of research. That's where I get all my questions from. But yeah, it's good to fill you guys in a little bit about Paul. I, th- I found this absolutely fascinating. He's a lot of fun to talk to as well, because, I mean, demography can sound a bit dull, but you're going to hear he's actually quite fun and, and snappy with me. We have a bit of a rapport, and I think it's really, really good. So, yes, go and follow Paul on all the socials and his website, get his books. We'll put some links in the thing and uh, enjoy this episode of Heretics. Are we doomed? No. 
Okay, might we be doomed? Yes. What's happening? We're not having enough children. Mm. That was at one point the privilege of wealthy Europeans. It became the privilege of Europeans more generally and North Americans. And now the trend to have far too few children to replicate ourselves has spread to quite distant and quite poor countries. In Thailand, in parts of India, they have lower fertility rates than we have. Mm. And if you go generation after generation, having less than a couple of kids per couple, then the population will eventually start falling and it will fall and fall and fall and fall. It will age, that's really problematic and we'll come on to talk about that. But even apart from the aging, if we never get back to replacement fertility rates, community after community, country after country, society after society will shrink away. The reason I don't think we're necessarily doomed is because somewhere someone is having children. Uh, the question is who, where, and why, I suppose. Bloody, and that's going to change the whole demographics. Well, if it carries on on the current trajectory, then certainly outside sub-Saharan Africa, which is the last place where people are having really substantially sized families, the sorts of people who have big families in London, in New York, in uh, rural America, are people who are not part of very mainstream society. And those communities will grow and the kind of secular, mainstream, liberal community will wane. And what sort of society we'll end up with, whether there'll be some kind of overarching narrative, some overarching state, I don't know. Interesting. Won't those people being born in those places then move to the cities and then you, this sort of stays the same in that sense? Well, the cities have always been a bit of a consumer of people. So if you go back to the 18th century, people had large families in, in the UK, for example, and many people went to London and they died at London. London had a very high death rate. It was very dirty mm. and diseased and people didn't have many children. So the cities were kind of sinks in a way. In a high fertility society, they would absorb people to the bright lights of London, kind of London of Handel and, and Dr. Johnson, uh, which is a pretty grubby place and they didn't live very long. And in a way, liberal society has become a bit like that. It's, it will eventually be sucking in the children of high fertility communities and possibly converting them to their way of life and low fertility. Or alternatively, the societies which have high fertility will hold on to their children and they will become predominant. So there are two models. There's a model of high fertility societies where they hold on to their kids and those societies grow and grow and grow. And there's another model where those high fertility societies like the Amish, for example, continue to produce lots of children, but lose them to the bright lights in the big city and the secular liberal world where they in turn have low fertility. Two models for the future. And we don't know which one yet. No, some societies are better at keeping their young than others. So for example, I write and talk a lot about this subject and I got an email back about three or four months ago from a woman who said, Dr. Morland, I like your stuff. I'm very interested in it. Um, but you don't talk enough about traditional Catholics. I'm one of five. My brother's got 11. My sister's got 12. My other brother's got 15. And so I only have three because I started late in life. So she was saying, why don't you talk about traditional Catholics? I think the thing about traditional Catholics, because Catholicism evolved as a majority religion. Catholics can live anywhere. They can travel to mass. They don't live in closed communities. And so whilst I wish the best of luck to her brothers and sisters and nephews and nieces, I think an awful lot of them will eff effectively 
leave that community. I think to, to make a really powerful demographic impact in the developed world where general background fertility is low and your fertility is high, you've got to hold on to those kids generation after generation. Because at the moment, those high fertility groups are really, really small. Mm. But with exponential growth, they might grow 3% a year while the rest of society is shrinking. So they could become quite predominant. But only that kind of compound growth will only happen if they manage to find ways of holding on to their young. So I think the big challenge for them is how did they hold on to their young? Mm. The big challenge for the rest of us, which I think is more pertinent and probably we should be spending a bit more time talking about, is how we get the general fertility rate of society up, say in the UK, from a 1.6, 1.7 it is today, to somewhere between two and three, so that we can have a bright future, we can have plenty of young people, we can have people entering the workforce, we don't become massively dependent on mass immigration. Yeah. We have a younger society and we can stop worrying about all the kind of problems that I spend my time talking about. Am I part of the problem because I'm 34, I don't have kids, my fiancé is nearly 30 uh, and is doing a, a law training <laughs> degree thing, you know, she's, she's, well, we've got to do a couple of years more of that and another couple, you know, and that kind of thing. Am I, am I a problem here? You're totally part of the problem. Yes. But good news is it's not too late. Before you can say good news is it's her fault. Good news is it's absolutely not her fault. The good news is you found each other oh. and you got married, I believe, which is We're getting. nice. So you're getting married, but yeah. you, you've coupled up. Mm. Um, and I would just suggest don't leave it too long. If, you, if, you, if we're here in 10 years' time and you ask the same question, I'd say, yes, you are part of the problem and there's not much you can do about it. This mm. Are people delaying, though, because of work? I mean, what, what are some of the reasons that we're having less children, fewer children? So in traditional societies, people have lots of children. As we know, there's a high mortality rate in traditional societies. And going back to Britain of 1800, say, and much of the world until 70, 80 years ago, two-thirds of kids didn't make it to reproducing themselves. And people had very large families. And then three things happen. You get urbanization you get education, and you get a rise in income. And so what happens is death rates fall, population grows, and then birth rates come down to something like two. And two or three is fine in a society where you're not losing your kids, where there's low infant mortality rates, and infant mortality rates are extremely low in developed countries. So we can afford to say we don't need to have six or seven children with two-thirds of them dying, thank goodness. Most of our kids are going to make it, and so two to three is fine. And that's where Britain was in the 60s early 70s. But now we've gone down to super low. So it's not just because we're all reasonably educated and it's not just because we're all reasonably wealthy and it's not just because most of us live in cities. Something more than that is happening. Something deeply cultural. And I think it's about the priorities people have in their lives. And it's not to say they don't want children, but they've just got a lot of other things they want to do. And if we're going to get over this hump, if we're going to solve the problem, children have got to go up the priority list. Mm. Is it, do, you, do you think it might relate to the status game? Uh, this this idea that, you know, I, I get my status from having a podcast. A lot of people, I know this, people are going to be annoyed. But I, the people get annoyed when I say this, but some people get status through their children. They live like, I'm not saying everyone does, but a lot of people do. And that's a status in itself. And, and so I've noticed that so many people who are very ambitious <coughs> about various other things um, suddenly drop those other things once they've had kids and that's what their Instagram's about. That's what all the, is there, is there a status thing? And, and, and do we then need to make children about status? <laughs> I am not a psychologist, hmm. but I think you may be onto something. So I think what we do need to do, whether you call it status or priority, 
I think children have to, having children and being parents at a reasonably young age has to be something that's cool. And I think it has to be something that you can find a way in modern society to combine with aspiration, with education. I'm not saying anybody should give up the chance of a decent career or the chance of a decent education. I'm simply saying, how do we work into that reproducing ourselves as a society? I don't particularly like the term status. I'm not saying it's wrong, but that almost feels like you're having children to show off. Mm. But I would like people to say, I'm really proud of the fact that in my early 20s or my mid-20s, or even my late 20s, I started to reproduce and I've got these kids they are the most important thing to me. And yes, I've also got my job. Maybe I've got my podcast. Maybe I've got my five-a-side sock, whatever it is. People have loads of things they get on with in their lives and loads of priorities. I just think that having children has slipped too low down the priority list and that's why it gets delayed. And then if you delay it long enough, it becomes difficult. Then we rely on the technology, which is very expensive. It's not always very reliable. The chances of having a child naturally in your late 20s are much higher than trying in your 40s with IVF. So I'm not sure about the word status, but I do think it is about people's psychology. It is about their priorities. And there's a very deep question about why that's changed. And why we have such a low level of uh, aspiration to have children. And again, that's that's complex. It's psychological. It's almost beyond my scope. What I can say is that it is something about priorities that uh, we are having too few children and that we'd better fix it. And that that is something we can all be doing something about. The government has a role, but it's not just about throwing more money at it. I suppose part of the reason I think of status is the... the well, decline in religion and religion now is seen as not cool i think anyway I, I, and i'm not religious myself so i don't think religion is cool but people once did and a big part of religious communities and tell me if i'm wrong i don't know but i feel like they they have lots of babies <coughs> that's a big part of the religion and the culture and things and now that's out that's uh, having kids is almost like a, it feels like, oh well, what are you are you religious or something people want to maybe distance themselves from that so two things the the, the relationship between religion and having children and then um whether we can have a secular society and have a lot higher fertility rate so what we call the abrahamic religions judaism christianity and islam all have a pronatal tendency now there's actually more complexity in that than it appears so for example in christianity there is a monastic tradition Mm. Um, Christian societies had a lower fertility rate when lots of people were going into monasteries and nunneries and priests couldn't get married and so on. I mean, we all know what was going on in the Middle Ages and, and celibacy vows weren't always adhered to. But still, if you take a whole chunk of people out of your um, reproductive pool, then you do end up with a lower fertility rate than you'd have otherwise. So Christianity is generally pronatal. More religious Christian people definitely have larger families, but it's not totally simplistic. Neither in Islam is it totally simplistic, and certainly um, Islam generally is fairly relaxed about the use of contraception, for example. Both Judaism and Islam are not nearly as anti-abortion as Catholicism. It's a complex picture. Mm. But what we find in those societies which have traditionally been Christian, Muslim, or Jewish is that where fertility rates come down, they come down more slowly. And they have actually gone very low in places like Italy, for example, but it's been a more gradual fall. And within the society, the more religious definitely have more children. And we know this, for example, we work in America shows very clearly religious attendance 
uh, or religiosity correlates with higher family uh, size. Uh, Israel, which is the only country in the OECD with uh, above replacement fertility rate, you can simply have a spectrum of how people identify by five or six religious categories, and the more religious, the larger families they have. So that's uh, that we know. What's different, though, is um, Buddhism and Hinduism don't seem to have that effect. Mm. And so what seems to be happening in um, Buddhist countries particularly, but also now in India, is that the fertility rate is falling very fast. Generally, when you get to a level of development, you go through what we've said, the, the, the death rate falls, eventually the fertility rate falls, population goes up and then its growth slows down. India's really falling very fast. Countries like Thailand, um, China, Japan have seen very, very fast falling and very now very low fertility rates. Korea, which has got a fairly recent um, evangelical tradition, but is essentially not a Abrahamic faith uh, mm. tradition, uh, is a country where the fertility rate is now 0.8. So each, each or 0.7 even now. That's very low, so, isn't yeah, it? It means each cohort's a third of the size of the last one. That means that the, the, the cohort of the grandchildren... Is is a third of the is a third of the size of the parents, and that's a third of the size of the grandparents. So that's a society that goes into freefall, and nothing quite as dramatic has happened in countries which at least have that Abrahamic tradition. So that's really nice to know. But then there's a kind of so what, and as someone who's advocating that we have more children, I can't tell everybody get religious. Uh, that's not. I think religion has pros and cons. I'm relatively religious myself and relatively observant but that which uh, i'm faith. jewish oh that's a personal um preference and probably does relate to my prenatalism but i'm not going to go around the world telling people that they have to uh have to be religious anymore than i'm going to tell them they have to have children there's clearly a correlation so i think what we have to get to is the following traditional societies had higher fertility rates religious societies have higher fertility rates we are moving into a secular world. We are moving into a world where most people are not religious. And I don't see that changing. There are some indications of a growth in religiosity in certain societies. But in most societies, we see secularization. We see a high level of female aspiration. We see a degree of feminism. And all of those things I... I'm open to and, and welcome. I don't particularly want to live in a theocracy. I don't want to live in a world where the opportunities of my daughters were any less than the opportunity for my son. So um, I'm not resisting those things. But my challenge back to people who lead those lifestyles is how do you reconcile those things with having enough children that we have a future as a society? How can we have a society where, we, where we're not relying on religion to have more children? How can we have a society where women are equal and they have full opportunities in the workplace and yet we find time, they find time within their working lives and their husbands do to have children? So, for example, my daughter, my older daughter, both my daughters had children last year. My older daughter's gone back to work beginning of January. Now her husband's taking paternity leave for three months. It's got to be an more equal, not necessarily 50-50 because of the breastfeeding and all sorts yeah. of biological things. She took nine months, she's taking three months. But I think if we are, we, we've got to imagine and recreate a future where a an equal opportunities world and a secular world is a world where people still have two to three children. 
And I'm not saying six or seven. I'm just saying two to three. That doesn't seem crazy to me. That seems achievable. Uh, but there are many places in the world that are achieving. Mm -hmm. I, I don't. I don't remember the last time I had this conversation with a friend who said, "Yeah, I'd like three or four. I don't remember last time I heard that. Uh, it tends to be two. You, most people have concerns about you know an only child, but it appears that a lot of people are still having only children. If, if we're at below two per per couple, there must be a lot of people with just one child, or yeah. is there, or is there a lot of zeros? <laughs> there are loads of zeros. So there's been okay. a huge rise in the zeros. But there's also been a drop-off. I mean, there's been a corresponding drop-off as you've got more zeros. There's been a corresponding drop-off in the ones and the twos and the threes and the fours, more or less in balance mm. in most societies. Um, but obviously, lots of people can't have children. Lots of people really don't want them. And again, I would rather we cease to exist as a species than that anyone gets forced to have children. Sure. That's not what I'm talking about. So people are going to opt out. So for everyone who opts out or can't or doesn't want, whatever the reason is, uh, I think it's important that the rest of us do a little bit more, which is why three is, I've got three, I think three is a good number. Four would have been very nice. Uh, I'll see how many my children have. I'm certainly one of them wants to have quite a large family. Uh, what can you do when you've got a prenatalist as a dad? <laughs> um, well, you can react, pressure. of course. None of, the, none of them have, and they're not really under particular pressure. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random 
IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hmm. Um, but what I'd like to see is a world where we're, we, we're not going back to the 1950s or the 1850s or the, or the 1550s. We don't need to do that in order to have two or three children per couple. That just doesn't seem to me irreconcilable. It shouldn't be irreconcilable if we get our priorities right, if we have the right dialogue, if government can actually get its backside into gear and do something about it. And actually, as a society, we pick up the challenge. We have icons. I often talk about David Beckham, Prince William. They're not talking endlessly about about how we need to have more children. I don't think either of them ever made a comment on the subject. They probably have massively more impact on people perceiving having children as a good thing to do than my endless uh, witterings and scribblings. And I don't underestimate your scribblings, but Elon Musk? Yeah, he's, one. I mean, I'm really pleased he's taking this issue very seriously. And he talks about it as the most important issue facing humanity. He's a bit marmitey, though. The fact that he's picked it up is maybe putting some people off. I don't know. I think one thing that's really interesting, though, is how talking about it has really upset certain people. So I wrote an article in the Sunday Times about a year and a half ago saying we need to have more children. And there are a whole range of things I was suggesting. One of the things I suggested we might do is have a differential tax system, as they have in many parts of the huh. world, in France, in Cuba, in countries of the left, countries to the right, where they say that just as we have benefits, which are child benefits, um, we could have a differential tax system. So you get extra tax breaks. If you've got children, pay a bit more if you have them. Uh, I, fortunately or unfortunately, that was headlined, is it time to tax the childless? But I don't use that. Oh, headline. no. <laughs> but I, it, got, it got us a publicity. But anyway, I, um, you know, it caused a lot of ire. A lot of people got really angry. And I think a lot of people get very uncomfortable. So I'm just writing down that title as a right. suggestion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so for this video, okay. is um, it time to tax the childless? <laughs> um, so a lot of people got very upset. Mm. And... Um, it seems to be a red rag to a bull, even to discuss these things. And Miriam Cates, the MP, who's a sort of great ally on this subject and has spoken out about it, is a very courageous woman. Um, I heard her on the radio the other day, so, and, and the interviewer um, was saying, um, I think it was Evan Davis, I can't remember, was saying, don't you find people react in a bad way and you need to be quite courageous to talk about this? And she said, yes, I am sometimes terrified to talk about it, but I think it needs to be talked about. Well, I'm not an MP. I'm not a public figure. Um, I could be shut down, but uh, that would really have a, an awful effect on, on the world. But the idea that an MP feels that she needs to be courageous to talk about this subject. And she was at, a, at, at an event that a friend of mine was also talking at. We'd written a paper together and and he was he and she would and others were talking about this paper and a labor mp was invited and she felt she couldn't come she was pretty much intimidated out of coming so we're in this funny space where 
we have had 50 years in Britain, I'm only talking about Britain, other countries are different, of too few children. And yet we haven't even got the debate underway to the extent that an MP can put his or her head above the parapet and say, let's talk about it without getting it shot down. Certainly in the Labour Party, and even people on the right are quite uncomfortable with it. Mm. We shouldn't be uncomfortable with it. I'm happy to debate it with people. I've got a new book coming out later this year, I hope, uh, called No One Left, which will be on this subject. And I hope that people will read it and will debate it and disagree with me, fine, and say either I'm wrong and we're much better off with fewer people, and I'm happy to debate anyone on that, or potentially say we don't need them because of technology or immigration. And again, I think there are good good arguments against that, why we do need to have kids. But uh, I think it would be far better that it got discussed and eventually that we get to the point where the government acknowledges, as some governments in the world have done, that we can talk about demography and that we've got, we are having too few children. And on the one hand, as I said, with 50 years, we've had too few children and we're still not at the point where we can really comfortably start talking about it without mm. the most extraordinary things. I mean, I got all sorts of extraordinary accusations thrown at me by suggesting we need to have more children. I think it was in vogue, they said, a whiff of the black shirt, or was it the brown shirt? I can't remember. So um, mm. it, that's just a way of, of shutting the discussion down, isn't it? Really? Is, that a is that a reference to Mosley? I, I, do, I don't know. I suppose it was pronatal, well, pronatal policies in Germany and Italy uh. under, under Hitler and Mussolini. But as I pointed out, Stalin was also giving out prizes for mothers to uh, have children. That's not suggesting. I'm not. I'm That's not good either. <laughs> I know, I'm not suggesting we do that. But if you look at the people on the the, the one-time heroes of the left, Stalin, Mao, Castro, they're all pronatalists, mm. and the left has suddenly decided, oh, to be pronatal is to be a fascist. Yeah, uh, that shows no sense of history. They don't understand their Marx because Marx was a pronatal, very anti-Malthus, a very rich and interesting. Uh, tradition of pronatalism on the left, but the woke left has decided uh, just to shut their eyes to that and say, if you're pronatalist, you must be far right. I see. So would I be right to surmise that if, if you do get attacked on the right, it might be that sort of fear of uh, scroungers on, on benefits, that kind of thing? Uh, oh, you know, they're going to oh, give tax, give extra money to those with all the kids. That's, that <laughs> feels like a right wing reaction. And the left wing, they are deliberately misinterpreting what you're saying so as to believe you're saying um, that women are recipients for babies. Yeah, it's the hand and maid's tail. So yeah. you're right on the left. On the right, I haven't really been, I don't think there are many people attacking me on the right or attacking this idea on mm. the right. Um, but if you were to attack it from the right, I think the most likely way you would do it would be from a libertarian perspective, yeah. which is people must make their own choices, which I totally agree with. Government has no business to get involved at all. And I'm quite sympathetic to that because I'm from that Thatcher right generation. I remember when she came to power, I was 14 and, and, and the country was in an awful state. And we needed a more libertarian approach to the world, by which I mean a slightly smaller state, slightly less taxation, smaller state. And the state not owning all the utilities and states, you know, used to own BT and, and, and the railways. And so that kind of libertarian right might say this is not a business for government. Okay. The problem with that, and I've discussed this with a former Thatcherite uh, cabinet minister who was saying, look, if there's a shortage of labor, the price of labor goes up and the market sorts it out. What are you wittering on about? And my response to that was that's all very well in theory if you're living in a libertarian wonderland. But in fact, in reality, if we're short of nurses, 
if we're short of doctors, if we're short of soldiers, if we're short of care workers and old age homes, mm. do our right-wing politicians want to turn around and say, well, we'll just turn these things into markets, people who can pay can pay, and people who can't pay for the health care or, or, or whatever will just do without. Now, we're not there. Nobody's there politically. So the state is intervening in all these areas. The state is saying, we need to make sure that if you're ill, you have a doctor, that if you're dependent, you have a, some kind of care worker, and so on and so on, that if your kid is young, he or she has a teacher. We, need, we the state, are going to take responsibility if all, if all the railway companies break down, that there will be a railway service with a driver. In other words, we're not living in some libertarian wonderland. The state is taking responsibility for all of these things. And therefore, I don't think the state can wash its hands of the very fundamental issue of where all these people, where all these workers are going to come from. Now, of course, you could say, well, with a smaller population, we need fewer workers. But the problem is, and it gets back to this problem of aging, the problem of dependency is how big is society on the one hand and how many workers, working age people are there on the other. And we've now got to the point where we have people living longer, which is a wonderful thing, still expecting to retire in their mid-60s. And more and more of those people and fewer and fewer people of an age who are paying taxes and working. So in Japan, for example, towards the end of the century, we will have barely one person aged 20 to 65 for every one person aged over 65. I don't know how, I mean, the Prime Minister of Japan has spoken of a societal collapse. And, I, and we're all set, we're heading in the same direction. Everyone will head in the same direction. If we have 1.5, 1.6 children per woman, never mind if we end up with a 0.8 in... Um, uh, like like they have in Korea. Nice. And again, uh, something I often cite is Japan on the way up, when it reached 100 million people in the 60s, there were five to six working age people for every retiree. When it gets back down to 100 million, it will be barely one for one. So I just, I suppose, you know, how did I get onto this monologue? It's essentially the response to right-wing libertarians saying governments have got no business, I would say that's fine if governments have got no business to provide healthcare and to make sure the economy is chugging along, mm. et cetera, et cetera, and to provide schooling. But as long as government is a, a, a player, and as long as we as a society want it to be a player, because we expect so, to, we, we won't find it acceptable as a society that old people are sitting in their homes with no one to care for them. We won't find it acceptable that there's a shortage of teachers. Teachers get high wages. They're very expensive, and you can't afford it. If you can't, you know, we're no longer providing free school education. All these areas where the state steps in and feels it needs to make provision because society feels we should be making social provision. All of these areas rely on people to be there to do the jobs. You've mentioned myriad factors in in this decline. <coughs> Is it also possible it's related to, for example, um, a decline in drinking? People don't drink as much alcohol, maybe less sex. There does seem to be less sex. I think one in three men, uh, young men are, are sexless now. Is that another concern? I think then, I, I don't know about the drinking. I find that un improbable, to be honest. And we know, for example, that there are still fairly high fertility rates in Islamic societies where drink oh. is forbidden. So, um, I mean, I've been to Pakistan. It's quite hard to get a drink in Pakistan. You can. Um, they've still got one of the highest fertility rates outside sub-Saharan Africa. Interesting. And so I don't, I'm, I'm very dubious about the drinking and, and some of those very hard drinking 
Scandinavian countries, which once had a quite high fertility rate, have got a very low one. Finland's gone through the floor. Mm. So I wouldn't, wouldn't take seriously the link to alcohol. The thing about sex is I think it may there may at root be something going on about relationships, about coupling up, about marriage, um, and that may be tied to sex in some way and not having many children. It's a lot of similar attitudes, putting people off having relationships, having children, having sex. But actually, you need relatively little sex to have quite a large family. So I always remember the there was a film, I think it was called The Meaning of Life, back when I was in, in, in the 1980s. Mm. And there's this... And the 1980s was such a different era, but there, it... it, it there's a the, the the camera pans. It's sort of it's supposed to be set in the twenties and thirties. There's a scene, and there's all these kids coming out of a house one after the other, and a, a very sort of messy, dirty house opposite the 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 net curtains twitch, mm. and this chap looks out disgusted and says, "All oh, those children, bloody Catholics!" Mm. And he says he says to his wife, ha, "Every time they have sex, they have another child," and she says to him. Well, that's like us. We've got one child. <laughs> um, but the, the point is, um, you can have an awful lot of sex and no kids, and you can have relatively little sex and quite a large family. It must so, be a correlation on a nationwide issue about scale. timing, not necessarily, no. I mean, if everybody got married young, let's say, yeah. and um, so had relatively few sexual partners, and had sex a few times within each menstrual cycle, I don't think you, would have a you wouldn't have a low fertility rate. So I'm not advocating one or the other. I'm simply saying you could have an extremely sexualized society where there is actually a lot of, even a lot of heterosexual intercourse and still have a low fertility rate. I would wager that a lot, and I'm not talking about myself or anyone yeah. who's, that I, I'm absolutely not, but that there are a lot of couples, young couples who are not engaging in sex three times each menstrual yeah. cycle or even, even necessarily yeah. once or twice. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm 60 later mm. this year and I went out with my on my first date with my wife in 1985. So I'm a long way from understanding the mores of the younger generation. Computer games. And it may be that I ought to understand them better. Mm. Um, but, you know, my kids, two of my kids are married now. My third has just got engaged. Mm. So um, maybe they're not, they're all, well, all, all in their 20s. So maybe they're not typical. Uh, mm. and, and, and it's probably something that I should understand better. And, and I'd be really interested, having got this debate going, if we agree as a nation we're not having enough children, mm. and lots of other nations do, and it, then I think we do need to have this discussion. Now, I've got my own theories about low priorities, as we've talked about. How that actually plays into whether or not you get married. We know half of kids are born outside wedlock. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Why aren't people coupling up? What do women say about men? What do men say about women? Um, but I think generally, once people decide they want to have children, provided they're a reasonable age and they're in a couple, mm. then they don't need an awful lot of sex in order to conceive reasonably, reasonably yeah. quickly. I just think maybe fewer accident births happen over an You're entire absolutely country. Absolutely right. So definitely, yeah. one of the things that's pulled fertility rates down is the sort of the almost the collapse of of teenage pregnancy, all that stuff, which was not great, which was often accidental. Yeah. Um, <coughs> so. You're absolutely right. That pulls it down to an extent. And there's been an absolute collapse in the fertility rate of people in their early 20s. Mm. 
but it hasn't been compensated for by a rise in their late 20s and early 30s and that's the problem so again i'm not advocating um let's go back to the teenage pregnancy but um the we the fall off in teenage pregnancies i suspect has got whether it's got to do with less sex or it's got to do with people being more sensible and taking precautions i couldn't tell you and i'm you know, it's a bit beyond my scope. Yeah, I'm interested because you say Japan and Korea, they're among yeah. the worst. And I also know, you know, those are the like real video game places. They yes. love playing their reality, virtual reality and all those things. And I do do wonder, to, you hear about people dying from playing so much that they forgot to eat and drink. Yeah. Which reminds me of that experiment with a mouse, I think it is, where it's connected to their brain and they push a button that goes straight to their brain and just it's just pure joy. Yeah. And then they don't eat or drink yes. and they die. Well, that's a bit like drugs, isn't it? Oh, I suppose it is, um, yeah. And... and um, I, th I think we can learn something from societies like Japan and Korea. So when we look at ultra-low fertility societies, mm. one of the things I said is they haven't got that Judeo-Christian-Islamic tradition. So that's part of the story. Um, is there something about the way they're doing modernity? Uh, the, the the very isolated lives that people lead. I mean, I put, like 20 years ago, I heard of this idea of a herbivore. It's a Japanese male who... I suppose it's like a, an incel, like an early version of an incel, a Japanese man who kind of retreats into his bedroom, doesn't want to see anyone, just plays video game. So I, mm. I think that I think the trends towards that and the trends towards having fewer children are in some way related, but I haven't exactly cracked how. Mm. And probably better minds than mine and younger minds than mine, more in touch with contemporary society. Um, you know, what I can say is we're not having enough kids and yeah. I can talk about certain correlates, but if you get into the psychology, if you get into the youth practice, if you get into the technology that people are using, I'm a bit at sea and I think it would be better investigated by someone who was a little more in touch with that kind of stuff hmm. um, than someone who was going on dates in the early 80s and got married in 1992 and is already grandfather. Hmm. Oh, I think even despite your your age, your, your those golden years, and I mean, you're, you're really not very, very old. And, and I think <laughs> you can understand. I mean, you, but as we were talking earlier, I am very divorced from popular culture. That's um, true. Well, yeah. you know, it's time to have a look. In. I, 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 th I don't know. I, I think it... it that must play some part. I'll go and do an anthropological study among some young people. In Korea and Japan. I, if I can observe them. Yeah, so I was in Korea actually earlier this year, or at the end of last year, giving, mm. a, giving a speech in Korea. Mm. And uh, it's very interesting. A couple of things about Korea that really mark it out. One is, I talk a lot about immigration, to what extent it's a solution, to what extent it isn't a solution. And somebody said to me in Korea, oh, but of course, we need to keep a homogenous society. And I think it's very interesting, Korea and Japan, the idea of an ethnically homogenous society is so taken for granted, nobody talks about it. It's not considered racist. It's just not one. even discussed. Whereas, you couldn't say that here. Whereas in the West, even to raise it as an issue is off limits because it's unacceptable. Yeah. So in neither society does it get discussed. But so that's one thing about Korea. And the other thing they said is, do, you need, do we need to celebrate motherhood more? And I said, no, you need to celebrate parenthood more. And that gets back to what I was saying earlier about finding a way to create a pronatal culture or a procreationist culture, which doesn't just say it's down to the women. And our demographers tend to do their analysis by woman. So we always talk about fertility rate by woman. Mm. There are a number of reasons for that. One is you always know who the mother is. So there's no two dads claiming a, a child or... Um, 
no dad claiming a child. The other thing is women's fertility is more limited in time, so we can talk about a particular cohort. Women born in 1970 say we know how many children they had and more difficult with men. Also, women have a more limited number. Generally, they have somewhere between zero and I once met a woman who had 15. So these, But men could have zero to goodness knows how many. Mm. So we tend to express data by woman. But I think we need to be careful not to fall into the trap that just because we express the data by women, we therefore put it all onto the woman. Yeah, that's how Boris Johnson's got away with it for so long. Nobody knows how many kids he's. I, I don't think, think he even knows. I hope you don't think he, ha he does, no. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground. Or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you, now you're going to die. You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? How could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Plinky County 911. There's a man at my back door. He's trying to get in. What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at What Was That Like. Com. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Interesting to know. I'd be interested right. to know. Well, I couldn't possibly film it. Something you touched on earlier <laughs> was um, China, Japan, a lot of these, but India. I think what's interesting, what, what I'm taking away from, from you and, and from watching you before is we, for a long time in the West, I think we're a little bit scared. Maybe we don't want to say that too much out loud, but like we're not going to be a dominant force anymore. These countries are going to be. And it looked quite scary, like bam, bam, bam. They're like huge suddenly and they could do everything we can do and more. And now they're struggling suddenly. So is it not necessarily the case that those countries are going to become the superpowers that we all imagine they would be? My second book, The Human Tide, talked about the relationship between power and demography. And I do think that if you don't have the numbers, you're never going to be a big power. You can have the numbers and not be a big power. So it's a having a large population is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for being a big power. And I think part of the West's dominance of the world in the 19th century was the fact that it got out of the Malthusian trap. There was a huge population explosion and people from Europe could travel and, and move and settle the whole of the world or very large parts of the world. And as Europeans lose that edge 
um, as they've shrunk enormously and continue to shrink, they can't be a major power in the world anymore. Who will be? I don't know. But uh, they will need large populations in order to... So somewhere like Nigeria, for example, has got enormous potential. Whether it can realise that potential, I don't know. We know, for example, China had a massive population in the 19th century and it was still powerless. Mm. So you need to have the numbers to be a great power. But you obviously need more than just the numbers. Um, then in terms of are other countries in trouble, there was a point in the early 20th century in Edwardian England when the middle class, the upper classes and then the middle classes were cottoning on to birth control. And so better off people had smaller families and the working class people still had very big families. And that was the moment, interestingly, where eugenics became acceptable. And people said, oh my goodness, the wrong sorts are breeding, the right yeah. sorts aren't breeding, we need to do something. Now, I think in a way we've been through a, a similar position on that at a global level, whereby people in Europe have said, Europeans aren't breeding, and the rest of the world is. But actually, just as the use of contraceptives filtered down society in early 20th century Britain, and eventually everybody was having small families. So that is now, as I think I started the discussion by saying, it's becoming a very global phenomenon. Mm. And you're finding that fertility rates are collapsing in places like India, in Thailand. Jamaica has a much lower fertility rate than the UK, for example. Wow. The only places in the world with really high fertility, persistently high fertility, is Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and even there the story is complicated. South Africa has gone down a lot. North of the Sahara, it's not so high. Countries like Ethiopia and Kenya, they've got a lot of momentum. They're still going to grow very big, but they're really getting their fertility rates down. Parts of Central and West Africa aren't. It's a global human phenomenon, and it's moving very, very fast. And it's no longer just a white European thing. And actually, the lowest fertility rates, as we've discussed, are in East Asia. And I think this is going to be a huge challenge to China yeah. in the coming decade. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, but they've got now got to support an entire generation uh, of older people that they can't quite be that force that I think we maybe feared over here that they would be. Yeah, and the Chinese Communist Party is going to find it extremely difficult to change tracks, having bullied and badgered people not to have children. Mao, by the way, as I said, was a pronatalist, and he believed that people mm. should have a large family. I'm not saying, therefore, that's a good thing, or Mao was a good thing. Quite the contrary. I mean, he was a terrible person, as were the other dictators who were pronatalists. But I don't think we should dispronatalism just because some bad men supported it. Um, but once Mao and the Gang of Four were out the way, they imposed this very strict one-child policy. And now it's going to be, now the government realises it's wrong and it's been a terrible mistake and they're desperately going around trying to reverse it, but they're not going to get anywhere um, unless they try coercive methods the other way. As Ceausescu in the 60s suddenly overnight in Romania banned contraception and abortion. And even in Romania in the 1960s, which was a pretty backward society in many ways, after a year or two of a very high fertility rate, people figured out ways around it. And I think the Chinese today, with their prosperity and education, are going to be very hard to bamboozle into having larger families than they want. Mm. Which goes back to what I said, it's about priorities, it's about what people want. It's not about forcing them. And I hope that in China they don't start forcing people. Yeah. One reason to be hopeful, by the way, is that people still say they want two to three children. If you actually ask people hmm. in their 20s, how many would you like? And that's something, that's a, a grounds for hope. That's a light at the end of the tunnel, as it were. Something we can work with. And for those who are policymakers, we can say, 
how do we help people achieve that goal? If people on average wanted to have one and a half children, I think the game would pretty much be up. But I think people still in theory say they want children. It's just not a high enough priority for them. That's the problem. Oh, it's so com it's so complicated, isn't it? Social science has always got anything at the social level is complicated, but we've got to battle our way through it and understand how we overcome it. We can't mm. sort of throw in the towel and despair and say it's so bloody complicated. Yeah. Um, there's nothing we can do about it. I think there are things we can do. There are things we can do at the personal and individual level, making our own decisions. And if we're past the age of having children, maybe helping our children have their own children would be a more active grandparent or an mm. uncle and aunt be kinder to people on the tube with buggies, um, <laughs> yeah. talk on podcasts about the need to have kids. I mean, there are all sorts of things you can do to support a more pronatal society. But in the end, it's got to be what people want to do. It's got to be about their choices. And I would very much regret any kind of coercive force trying to raise the fertility rate in an artificial manner. I don't think it's a question of, of um, cajoling your kids to have more children but for example this morning my wife was up at seven going over to my daughter and son-in-law to look after the baby so they could have a lion well they're more likely to have more children if they feel they've got that level of support that's than they're nice. being run ragged so that's the way to do it do they're you do it as well sometimes <laughs> that means no but i know yeah i, I think i'm quite an active i am quite an active grandparent but i don't mm. get up at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. You, you know something though, and this is purely, purely anecdotal from people I've spoken to, I don't have kids myself or anything like that, but not only have I noticed that, that young people are less, talking less about wanting to have children, but also grandparents, they all want the kids, but there's a little bit more of like a, well, I hate if you think I'm going to be up at, you know, whatever time in the morning, if you think I'm going to be over doing all this. I've heard loads of people saying that their parents are that, and that didn't seem to be the case just a while ago. No, I've heard people say that. And that's mm. why I think even if you're past the age to have your own children, <coughs> you can say, well, let's take one cruise fewer and go away with the mm. kids and somewhere perhaps a bit cheaper, a bit simpler and, and look after it. Again, at, at Christmas time, we, we, we were in our house in France. Um, my daughter and son-in-law, every morning we were up. So I was up with my grandson then mm. and we were letting them lie and that's an attractive holiday for them. So I think grandparents, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, everyone can do their bit to make the burden a little lighter, which may encourage a higher fertility rate. What a lot of people will, it's sort of almost a reflexive uh, reaction, um, say is, well, hang on, there's not enough space, but I believe that there is. Is there enough water to, if we had more and more people? The issue of resources is really badly understood. So people talk about, oh, we're using up more than the resources of the planet and so on. It's very much a question of technology. As technology advances, first of all, space, there's plenty of space. Have you ever flown into Stansted Airport, for example? Mm -hmm. Not that far from London. Miles and miles and miles of fields. And you're in the southeast. You're in the heart of the southeast of England. One of the, so there's no absolute limit to the amount of space. And I'm not saying I want to see the whole country um, concreted over, but there's loads more space. So that is a bit of a red herring. Um, and in terms of resources, we were told we were running out of oil. Now we're told we can't use oil, but there's loads there. There's a huge amount of renewable resource available. And something like water, um, the, the advances in desalination, for example, have mm. been phenomenal and is much, much cheaper than it used to be. So the great thing about people is they're very inventive. And the more people, the more brains, the more solutions. Whereas a country like Japan, as it gets older 
more and more of its people going to their 60s and 70s, fewer young people going into academia generally, studying, solving problems. Aging societies will be much less good at cracking issues like global warming, like how to make better use of sustainable energy, how to desalinate water. We, we're going to solve these problems by brilliant young brains. And the more of those uh, older people we have, the fewer younger people, the more we're sucking all the creativity and the energy out of young people to service the old people, the less likely we are to come up with the brilliant solutions that will figure out how we could have a few more billion people on the planet without breaking the environment. What's the doom scenario for like the UK? What does the UK look like in 50 to 100 years in, in a doom scenario? I wrote a paper on this for the ARC um, uh, festival, the ARC uh, com conference, which was held in London back in uh, early November, which Gordon Peterson and Bjorn Lomborg organized. And that paper suggests it's a trilemma, really, that we can have two out of three things and what we choose will resolve, determine our future. So we can be like the Britain of the last 30 years, too few children, um, not breeding enough, not having enough kids, and at the same time wanting to fill roles, wanting the economy to grow and take over. And the only way to square that circle is mass immigration. Which some people welcome, some people don't. Very rapid ethnic change, I don't think is a good thing. Uh, we've seen in Europe it gives rise to a backlash, and I don't want Britain eventually to become a country purely made up of random people from all over the world who've just come to service our old folk. That's not a model that I would welcome. Um, and by the way, rest of the world's having fewer kids. There won't be all that many people to come. And I think it's immoral to say we're too busy and too important to have our own kids. Let others do it. Bear the cost in poor countries of educating their children, bearing the children, then we'll whip them off. So I don't think that's a solution. Mm. The second solution is the Japanese solution, which is to say, well, we want to be homogenous, so it's too late for that, but we don't want any more immigration, thank you very much. But we're not going to have any more kids. And then we will have societal collapse. We will have not enough nurses, not enough doctors, not enough van drivers, not enough plumbers. And it'll be very well for the libertarians, as I said, to say that labor will find its price, but we will have people in dire need of workers. And I don't think AI is going to fix that or any other technology because there are just too many jobs that can't be done uh, by robots or by in, in artificial intelligence the only way out of those two bleak futures is to get our fertility rate up and if we did that then we could have a society with a modest level of immigration we are a multiracial society that's not going to change all our communities can flourish we can keep a relatively uh, stable e ethnic balance between different groups without rapid change making people uncomfortable. We don't need, therefore, mass immigration. We can keep the lights on. Uh, that is the future that I would prefer for the UK and for any other country that is today having too few children, which we are not the worst and in very, very wide company. Mm. Do, you ever, do, you, do you know about the Fermi paradox uh, around aliens? I have read a book on the subject. Why? Why? If there are so many aliens, in the, if there are so many civilizations in the world, why haven't we met any? Yeah, the, we haven't. So we haven't encountered any aliens. Uh, does that mean there aren't any? Aliens? Yeah, and there's the great filter. Uh, the idea there's something. There's something that you either have to get past. Maybe right. we already got past it, yeah. or there's something that every civ <coughs> right. Like, so civilization every civilization hit this problem. This is the problem they've hit. Is, is this the one that yes. we can't get out of? Maybe yeah. in in a hundred years, the whole world starts to get down to zero point five or something, and that's it. The reason I'm a bit suspicious of that is that 
I think there are always going to be societies and communities and cultures where they are having quite large families. Um, whether those eventually take over or not, I don't know. But of a Hasidic Jewish exactly. world. Um, a, a, a community made up of Hasidim and Amish and Hutterites and maybe some of those traditional Catholics. And, and that we won't get there without enormous um, social political turmoil. Mm. Uh, but perhaps at the end we get there and that's what the world looks like. Or um, the other possibly related point is that there is a pronatal gene. Some people think we are pronatally, uh, that the, the, some people are disposed to be pronatal. And in the past, there was no control over fertility, so it didn't express itself. Then there was massive social pressure, so it didn't express itself. Now, for the first time, we're in societies where not having kids is fairly normal. And therefore, that antenatal gene, pronatal gene, the antenatal gene is expressing itself and it will effectively breed itself out of the population. Mm. And those who do have children will be passing on a pronatal gene. So there's a kind of cultural meme thing, if you like, that keeps it going because the culture is pronatal. You'd think well, the antenatal would be gone from the, the 300,000 years. You of... would, but the fact is that people couldn't control their fertility. I mean, contraception oh. didn't really exist. And only fairly recently are people who don't want children feeling free not to have them. So there's either this sort of mimetic cultural pronatalism, which will, as I was saying earlier, grow and grow and grow, keep, have large families, keep the families, keep the children within the family and grow at 3% a year until suddenly the whole world is Amish or Hasidic mm -hmm. or whatever, which, as I said, is going to be a strange world and a world in which um, there'll be huge political change. We're not going to get there with our current political institutions. Or maybe there's a genetic answer, which is we'll go through a, a, a population winter and come out the other side with people who are genetically predisposed to have large families. But either way, I mean, the, the latter would suggest we will go through a very long period of very, very small populations, a period of rapid aging, a period of terrible dependency ratios. And I also think that will lead to a breakdown of political and economic institutions as we used to having them. I mean, I studied economics in the 80s. And... I think we always assume there was this growth of the population. That was sort of mm -hmm. the fact. If you, if you study business, there's always this assumption markets grow. That how, imagine trying to run a business in Korea where you know, or a school or a charity or any kind of institution where you know that every cohort is going to be a third of the size of the last one. Wow. In 25 years, we're down to a third. Very optimistic uh, point to end on. Before we get, I've got one more question for you, but first tell me where we can find your stuff and support you. I am now on X, but don't post there particularly frequently, but that may change. Uh, the best thing to do if you're interested in what I do is um, do a search for me, Paul Morland, M-O-R-L-A-N-D, and you will find my website. On my website, I put all my podcasts, articles, and so on. They're all gathered there. Mm. Uh, or if you put my name into uh, YouTube, you'll find all my videos and talks. Who's a heretic you admire? A heretic I admire? Mm. I have a lot of friends who I would say are heretical. And I would... Am I allowed to have three? Or yeah. I, I think um, David Goodhart... Ed West and Eric Kaufman um, are three friends of mine whose out-of-the-box thinking and brave opposition to all things woke I admire very much. And I think they're all moving the Overton window of discussion in this country. I think they're all doing a great job. So I'm always happy to give them a plug. 
Thank you for joining me, Paul Morland, Dr. Paul Morland. Go and get his books and things. They are going to be in the in the links, uh, in the description and all those those things. What do you think of all that? Go and have some kids, everyone. Come on, get a move on. Can't leave it all to Paul and his three. Got to get have some lots of kids. Enjoy doing that. Maybe keep this podcast on while you go. No, don't. Just pause the podcast. Go and have some kids. Come back in nine months and catch up with all the all the episodes. Um, I'll see you next time.